Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. It's become cheaper and easier than ever before to access genetic testing, and more and more people are having their genomes done for reasons of personal interest, health or ancestry. But what happens when an innocent genetic investigation reveals dark family secrets? And how do we properly engage and inform people about genetic testing and research so that they really know what they're getting into? It's been impossible to ignore the rise in direct-to-consumer and medical genetic testing over the past few years. And as the cost of whole genome sequencing falls, and the potential personal, health and financial value of genomic data rises, this trend is only likely to continue. But do people really realise what they're signing up for when they spit into a tube or squirt out a blood sample? As we head into the next decade, ethical issues like informed consent and privacy for genomic testing and research are becoming impossible to ignore, especially as your DNA doesn't just belong to you, but is also shared with your blood relatives. When Jack Nunn started doing a PhD at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, looking at how to involve people in genomics research, the most obvious place to start was with his own family. But he could never have predicted the secret that would be revealed once they started looking into their genes. So I'm, I'm a big believer in get your own house in order, you know, sort out your own backyard first and, and talk from personal experience. So I started doing a PhD about genomics and the working title was Genomics, Identity and Community, which was far too big and vague. However, I, I did think, well, I'd, I'll get my mum a DNA test because she wanted to find out who her grandfather was, etc. And she did find that out. She got some other unexpected results, though, which were quite interesting. I encouraged her to share her raw data from the, from the DNA test on GEDmatch, which is a, a free sort of open source way of sharing your raw data from different services. Someone got in touch with my mum on this service and said, I think we're related. And I said to my mum, you know, be careful, this could be a scam. And then other people started popping up and we started to triangulate the data and it turned out that this person thought my mum was their half-aunt. So this asked a few questions. Mm -hmm. So my mum actually discovered that she had a half-sister through this service. And so then other half-brothers and half-sisters started popping up online. This was quite unexpected. So after being in touch with a few of them, it actually... Uh, became apparent that my mum was conceived with a sperm donor. Uh, so this would have been in about 1948, 1949. And this was in fact the first place in the world that sperm donation was done, artificial insemination. And it so happened that one of the people who uh, was conceived by a sperm donor had, had made a couple of films about this, one called Offspring, one called Biodad, a guy called Barry Stevens in Canada. So suddenly we realised this wasn't kind of a scam on the internet, my mum was actually one of perhaps somewhere between 600 and 1,000 people conceived by this one man, Bertolt Wiesner. Oh, whoa, back, back up. So there's a guy, he's working in a fertility clinic, he's donating his own sperm, and he's made 1,000 babies. Potentially. The records were purposely destroyed. This is a time when 
you know, the legal area was very, you know, the House of Lords was saying artificial insemination was the work of Beelzebub. The clinic was run by a woman called Mary Barton. She'd actually been to India and seen a lot of families that had trouble conceiving. And of course, in those days, well, they just blamed the women. And anyone who knows anything about anything knows, of course, it can be either. So coming back to England, she worked to kind of help families conceive who were having difficulties. Bertolt Wiesner was an Austrian scientist who, in the 1930s, saw the way things were going. He didn't identify as Jewish, but the Nazis labelled him as that. He went to Edinburgh University and did a lot of the science around, you know, if you wee on a stick, you can tell if you're pregnant. That was sort of his work. They wrote a British Medical Journal article about their work, and they had a clinic that people could come. So my grandma, for example, so she went to this clinic. She used to work for the air ministry. When she got married, she was made to quit, and she was given something that was called a dowry payment. This is, of course, in the 1940s. Uh (laughs) And that was sort of about a year's salary, and basically it was somewhere around that amount that was given to the clinic. I believe they did run a free clinic once a week for, for people too. And basically, the journal article said that they selected donors from intelligent stock. So we're talking about eugenics here too. And they, as far as we can tell, had sort of three main donors, one of whom was Bertolt Wiesner, another was a a man called Derek Richter. And the details are not clear, so I won't speculate. But what we do know is that there are at least 20 half-siblings in touch now. And... Therefore, I've got potentially, you know, thousands of half-cousins. And so from starting a PhD with a working title as Genomics, Identity and Community, I suddenly find myself part of potentially the largest single ancestor cohort on planet Earth, which is quite strange. So this is putting that old Wiesner, like, up there with, with Genghis Khan. It's, you know, He's in third pretend- place. How did it feel for your mum, for your family? Have you talked to any of the the people who turn out now to be your your clan. Yeah, by strange coincidence, I was the first person to talk to my mum after she discovered it. I live in Australia, she's in the UK, and she said, oh, I've just, I'm in a bit of shock, and my mum doesn't say that lightly. And, of course, my first thought was that my mum and dad were going to be brother and sister. That's where my mind went with this, like, oh. And then when that wasn't true, for me, everything else was a relief (laughs) and kind of interesting. Um, My mum handled it very well, and not to speak for her, but we've got new family now. We've got new relations. It's a, and, um, of course, it's different for every person. And it does ask that question, you know, how important is your DNA? And I think it's as important as you want it to be, which can be not at all or completely. And that's a personal decision. But we have been lucky enough to meet up a, a few times. We had an event in London last year where I met a lot of them for the first time. And, in fact, just last weekend we had another meet-up when you all got together and met up, were there actually physical characteristics? Could you go, ah, oh, that's Bertold Nose. You can see it in everyone. Absolutely. Actually, the one thing that's happened to me is I, I met one of my mum's half-sisters who, who happened to live near me. And I actually got a bit spooked when I saw her because not only did she look a little bit like my mum, but her mannerisms were very similar. And I hadn't seen my mum for about a year. And it's sort of, it was a nice feeling, but it was a weird one. You know, it's that are we just code walking around? And yes, we are, is the short answer. So what is it to be human? What is it to be family? These, these words are being challenged by these new realities. And I think that's what I love about genomics is it's opening up a new frontier on understanding ourselves. 
And suddenly I find myself part of the group that might be best placed to help start to answer some of those questions. I used to think nature-nurture was sort of a wide-open debate and that, you know, it was fairly wide. You know, you're not going to turn into a banana, but, you know, you're fed. After meeting my genetic relatives, we have things like similar sense of humour, mannerisms are very similar, and yes, I have personal feelings about the nature-nurture debate now that are, I'm a lot more hard-code than I like to think I am. Of course, it'll be a wide-open debate forever, but... The really interesting thing now, the question on my mind is, well, suddenly this cohort of people who are descendants of Bertolt Wiesner will, of course, be of interest to medical research and could potentially save lives. So my PhD supervisor sort of said, well, it's, it's kind of beyond coincidence that you're looking at this subject and then discovered yourself to be a part of this. To not incorporate it into your PhD would be a huge missed opportunity. To say very briefly, it was, of course, ethically complicated. Um, <laughs> and we worked very closely with La Trobe University Ethics Department, who were incredibly helpful. We got it going, and effectively, we invited some of the siblings to, or half-siblings, to be part of an online discussion. And we used that method for a group of people affected by a rare disease as well. And basically, it's sort of asking the question, if we were going to do research with this group, how would you like to talk about how you'd like to talk about how you might do the research? So it, it's fairly sort of, you know, very... Yes, and of course this is, this is sort of the first preliminary stage. And, and what's interesting is, not, not to speak for anyone in the group, but there's a genuine sort of belief from a lot of the people that this is a good opportunity to perhaps help answer this nature-nurture discussion. So the next question is, you know, how do we go about doing that? And certainly with, with Science for All, the organisation that I've started, we're looking at evidence-informed ways of involving people who have shared ancestry, which could be Indigenous peoples, it could be these kind of groups. Of course, there's another group from Derek Richter as well in parallel. And I dare say probably we are the first of many who will make such discoveries. Whether it will be as large a cohort, who can say, I hope not? but you just don't know, and it might be happening right now. People who thought they'd perhaps get away with this in the past or never considered this would be a thing, you know, it's coming, and it's coming for everybody. So for me, the question isn't how interesting this is or how this feels. It's we need to very urgently come up with ways of answering the question of how do we share power in these decision-making ways? How do we make it that, you know, yes, we are all unique, precious snowflakes, but we're also 99% similar to everyone else and a fairly uniform crystal structure. So, you know, if somebody says, oh, I don't want to be part of this, but actually you discover certain things about someone else, I mean, the obvious example would be identical twins or something. Does that identical twin get to veto their twin having their genetic test results? And Yeah, I think I did see a story about two twins. I think it was testing for Huntington's disease and one wanted it and one didn't. And I think in the end, one of the relatives accidentally blabbed the answer to the twin that didn't want to know. So I can see that if you've got lots of people out there who don't realise they're related, but actually are, this is a whole modern can of worms that humanity has never really had to to deal with of course and it's coming and with the the accessibility the, the drop in cost it's coming soon and this is why i wanted to do my phd in this area because i didn't see anyone really talking about this or thinking about it and we need to be ready and we need to be ready now bring into the mix legislation around insurance employment let's say even rising nationalism bring that into the mix 
we have a potential nightmare scenario on our hands if we don't work out our preferred realities. There are lots of possible realities. We need to collectively decide what our preferred ones are and how we share power in making those decisions so that it isn't just what certain people want. We'll be coming back to Jack later on. But in case you'd like to know more about the incredible story behind Bertold Wiesner and his fertility clinic, we'll put some links on the page for this show on the website, geneticsunzip.com. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please, please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference when it comes to helping more people discover the show and spreading the word about the wonderful world of genetics. Jack's family never expected to discover such a dark truth about their origins from a simple genetic test. Yet thousands of people all over the world are merrily taking these tests and even putting their data online. But have they really thought through the implications? To find out more about the ethical issues around the fast-changing field of consumer and medical genomics, I caught up with Anna Middleton, Head of Society and Ethics Research at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge. The landscape has just changed enormously. Genomics has exploded into mainstream arena. So whether that's via healthcare and the new genomic medicine services that are occurring in the NHS, or whether it's via direct-to-consumer testing online. So, you know, you just do a Google search of genomic tests or genetic tests and loads of companies will come up. It's, it's everywhere now. Given this almost ubiquity now of the idea of genes, genetic testing, how is the public perception of this kind of technology? Well, it really varies. And so, you know, you, you can walk into Boots now and see the double helix spinning on a beauty counter and it gives an air of science and credibility here comes the science yeah yeah, this is this is complicated stuff that you should understand but also it can create a distance because it can make you think well it's sciencey so therefore I won't understand it and so there's an element of well what do I trust and what do I not trust with this the way that genetic testing particularly for the direct-to-consumer tests is marketed is often about discover something about yourself, discover what you should be eating or what your exercise routine should be or use this in your healthcare. And actually, a lot of those claims are really overstated and, you know, read the small print because often what you'll find is that they can't really offer you very much. There are lots of different kinds of tests you can do from the clinical genetic test looking for specific diseases to what skin care should I have? How have these different kinds of tests caught up the public imagination? Well, from our research, we're finding that people aren't distinguishing between the different types of tests. So a genetic test is just a genetic test, you know, whether it's for something really serious and life-threatening or whether it's for, you know, something really benign or recreational. So people aren't actually distinguishing between the different types of test. And that's actually a very important thing to go into because if you're wanting to explore whether you have a predisposition to inheriting breast cancer or not you know that's a really serious issue that you can talk to your GP about and go and actually speak to a health professional about buying an over-the-counter direct-to-consumer test to answer that question is not the right way to go whereas if you're interested in ancestry or I don't know fitness and nutrition then that's a completely different kettle of fish and I would just say buyer beware and 
take those tests with a pinch of salt, really. They're just a bit of fun. And one of the other things in the small print, obviously, is that it's not just your genome. Your genome is similar to many people that you're related to. If you're an identical twin, it's identical to that. And now we're starting to see more and more stories of now more people are getting their genomes done, for want of a better word. Unusual stories starting to emerge. Family secrets, misattributed parentage, I believe is the correct phrase. And, for example, stories where people have gone to sperm donors or fertility clinics and have not turned out to have the baby with the parentage that they expected. Can we expect to see more of these kind of stories? And and what does that really mean for people who just buy a test off the shelf and think, oh, this is fine, this will just tell me something fun? Yes, absolutely. And even if you've never personally had a genetic test or bought a test, if you're biologically related to somebody who has, then their data will be online somewhere and it will sit in a database that's probably been sold to industry and is probably being shared around the world at the moment. So even if you're not currently having any sort of interaction about your, your genome, if your biological relatives are, then it can link back to you. And particularly with the ancestry sites where people upload their own family trees and they label relatives on there that they haven't asked their consent to do that. So you can then extend the kind of information that's out there about relatives. And so that's how you can track people down. And there's kind of two things here. So there's one thing about maybe discovering let's call them breaks in the family tree that you weren't expecting, for example, where your dad or or someone's dad is not their real dad. Mm. And then also the police forces now starting to use this information to triangulate towards people's identity. Do you think this kind of information and this message is really well enough understood by the people who do choose to take genetic tests or direct consumer tests? No, there's not enough information about the way data sharing happens and also the fact that many companies, their business model is to sell your data on. So there's much more needed in terms of transparency about the way that the data is used. But in terms of access to data sets, well, for example, Golden State Killer, which I guess um, you might have heard about, which is where quite an insecure database was accessed, full of genomic data from ancestry sites and things uploaded by people themselves trying to track down relatives. And this was used as the way to track down killers by the FBI in the USA. And those killers themselves hadn't uploaded their data and they hadn't had genetic testing themselves, but it was their relatives that, that had. And so it is possible to track people quite easily. And actually what we say now in terms of research and then taking consent for research is we say to people, we can't fully guarantee that your data won't be accessed by somebody in the future, even if it's de-identified. If your data is online, there's always a possibility that you could be identified. And, you know, people can either choose to take part in research or not on the basis of that. But I think the key thing is to be transparent. But one of the things that we're looking at in our research is whether people actually care. You know, do they mind being identified, de-identified? And what we're finding is that if people feel strongly about the purpose of the research and they see the value of genetics in helping to understand human health and disease and the links between genes and disease, then actually they don't really mind so much about the risks of identification because the value of doing the research outweighs their own personal privacy, which I think is really interesting. I mean, I guess it's fine if you know that your dad is definitely your dad and that there are no murderers in your family, I suppose. Well, (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's always the risks that unexpected things will pop up. And if you talk to the ancestry companies, they'll often say, well, that's a positive thing. You know, people often... That is going to ruin Christmas. Oh, we did an ancestry test and then it turned out you're not my dad. That's not a positive thing. I totally agree. And the way that the companies spin it is is that this is exciting and this is all new information. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, there needs to be much more information about the possibility of these things before you actually have testing but also the other thing is there needs to be forewarning about a possible emotional reaction even just to getting information about yourself because often you don't anticipate that you're going to be quite shocked or overwhelmed or struggling with something until you actually have the test and then the results are there in black and white and often with these companies there's nobody there to pick up the pieces so you know there needs to be much clearer information about what the potential outcomes are. And there's new regulation coming into the UK, in vitro diagnostics regulation, that does actually mention the need for genetic counselling to accompany some of these really serious tests that are looking at really serious life-threatening conditions. So let's unpick what we mean by genetic counselling, because I can appreciate that if you have a a life-threatening hereditary condition in your family, yes, you're going to want to talk through that, Mm -hmm. the implications of that, what can this test tell us, how, you know, on a shade of black to white to grey how much can it tell us about risk but what about genetic counselling more broadly and particularly going into some of the more recreational direct-to-consumer areas what do genetic counsellors need to be doing and coming into? So I think genetic counsellors should not be gatekeeping access to all genetic tests but they do have a part to play when we're looking at testing for really serious life-threatening conditions that are strongly inherited or we might call it um, fully penetrant say so if you have the gene variant then you're very likely to get the disease those sorts of conditions which are quite unusual and quite rare so this would be something like Huntington's disease yeah yeah or the inherited young onset bowel cancers for example or cystic fibrosis or Duchenne muscular dystrophy these conditions where you have the genetic variant and you're likely to get the disease because there prior to having a test there might be lots of things to think through about how you're going to communicate the result to relatives, the timing of testing, what you're going to do with the results, what screening you're going to have, whether you're going to have risk-reducing surgery, all those sorts of things need to be thought about before you go for testing. So that's within the realms of medicine. But separate from that, the more recreational genetic testing, yes, it can throw up all sorts of surprising things, but a genetic counsellor doesn't necessarily need to have an hour's consultation before you have a test. But I do think the company should provide access to genetic counselling for people who are, you know, post-test, who are actually quite anxious about what the results have revealed. And in the case where tests do throw up surprises, for example, in the case of the fertility clinic, where suddenly you discover that there's many, many, many people Mm. who are your relatives you never realised, or unexpected family relationships. I mean, what access to support can people find there? Well, there's very limited access to support. And genealogists, particularly, are often not trained in any counselling or psychotherapeutic interventions. So, you know, there's a real gap in the market in terms of the right professionals to be picking up the pieces when it's needed. And often you hear, you know, like maybe, I don't know, companies that do um, nutritional and sporting kind of genetic testing, they will talk about dietitians or naturopaths or sports scientists picking up the pieces. And when you're talking about ancestry testing, it might be genealogists or ancestry specialists who pick up the pieces, but, you know, not specifically trained in that emotional kind of dynamic. So who would do that? Well, it could be genetic counsellors or it could be other people that just trained in how to have a very sensitive 
conversation about the potential impact and the emotional kind of turmoil that people are going through. I remember at university, people just started to go into bioinformatics and this was the hot thing. And we've seen over the past 20 years, all these companies springing up offering genomic analysis, genetic testing, direct-to-consumer testing. Are there enough genetic counsellors to be picking up the pieces here? It just strikes me that everyone wants to do the genomic analysis and the sequencing and all that cool stuff. And no one wants to sit down and work out how do you communicate the results and what this means? So I'm the departing chair of the Association of Genetic Nurses and Counsellors at the moment, and um, we know that there's about 300 genetic counsellors in the UK. That's not a lot. No, it's not many, and there's 7,000 worldwide. They're very, you know, highly trained and competent to practice in genomic medicine. And the worry is, you know, they take their six years of training and then they just get sucked out of the NHS, particularly in industry, earning three times the salary and are, you know, not there to do their core job that they've been trained for. So, yeah, there's a real urgent need to upskill um, health professionals generally in how to have a conversation about genomics. And, And actually, there's a big push from the government to help nurses. So if we think about the 60 million nurses worldwide, how do we get genomics into their curricula and their practice and their registration processes so they can have conversations about genomics? What about something like chatbots? You know, could could one day your genomic test come along with a little chatbot that will chat to you and, and talk you through everything? Yes, absolutely. Chatbots are definitely the future. They're not definitely not going to replace genetic counselling, which is Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> which is a very patient-centred, dynamic dialogue. And at the heart of that is a thing called the Therapeutic Alliance, which is evidence-based. But the actual information giving about what genetics is, yep, chatbot could do that. And actually, that would be really great to get you know, more mainstream conversations happening. You know, what is a gene? What does this test mean for me? What are the consent issues I need to think about? What are the screening options available? None of those need counselling as such, but information, yes, a chatbot could do that. And actually, that's one of the things we're going to be working on in the future. Anna Middleton from the Wellcome Genome Campus, who's unlikely to be replaced by a chatbot anytime soon. You can find out more about her work looking at the ethical, legal and social implications of genomics online at genomeethics.org. And Anna also tweets at at genomeethics. As Anna points out, it's vital that people have access to information about the implications of genetic testing and research, as well as access to counselling if necessary. It's also really important to find the right ways to help the public engage with issues around genomics, especially as it's only going to become more prominent in the coming years. Given that it's the topic of his PhD, I asked Jack Nunn for his thoughts about how best to go about this tricky task and also the risks of getting it wrong. My worst fear is that we'll lose public trust in the research and I think Involving people is going to be central to public trust and participation in future genomics. And if we don't get that right, it won't happen. And for example, you know, if there's a breach or people don't feel that their needs or priorities are being reflected, or, you know, for example, we know that people of European or Asian ancestry are hugely overrepresented in terms of the number of genomes that have been sampled. So the question is, how can we actually ensure that people feel that genomics research is for them? And, you know, that phrase, nothing about us without us. And, and my nightmare scenario is that there will be a breach or, or that public trust will be broken. People will kind of clam up and go, well, I'm not going to choose to give my data to research. And then the long echoes of that could be felt for generations. And, and that's a huge risk for me. So my question is, well, how can we do it well? How can we do it right? And can we bring some evidence-informed methodology into that? I think this is so important because we have the idea of the human genome, we have the idea of our own personal genome, 
and this matters, this really matters to us. So what is the best way of finding out from people what they think is acceptable? You know, can you just do like a you know, online survey, Twitter poll? What is the best way of engaging people with this kind of work? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And certainly the, the first step we took was conducting a systematic scoping review of about 100 genomics projects around the world uh, linked with the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health and actually looking at that question and, and part of it was the language so for example if you're in Canada maybe you use the word engagement if you're in England you use the word involvement if in England you're a patient in Australia you're what they call a consumer you know you consume medicine or what have you so the linguistic analysis enough was sort of are we talking about the same thing here and then I was looking at well what methods did they use to involve people was it a certain survey, public dialogue, face-to-face uh, -face events, and then what tasks were people involved in? So were they identifying topics? Were they involved in ethical oversight? And so we had the results from that, and about 30% of global genomics projects were involving people in some way. Some of them involved people in every stage. Uh, examples of excellent or best practice would probably be the UK Biobank, certainly Genomics England as well, and what the Precision and Medicine Initiative is called, All of Us, they showed or demonstrated involvement at a lot of stages. But what I also knew to be true was there are a lot of projects that were doing it that weren't reporting it. Reporting is inconsistent and not systematic, so you can't then create an evidence-informed way of involving people. And the problem with that, of course, is if, if you go to the Wellcome Trust or, or whoever's funding research and say, you should be involving people, and they go, okay, how much is it going to cost and what's the best way to do it? And no one can answer that question at the moment. And I think that's quite important. So what I've created as part of my PhD is something called standardised data on initiatives, which is a standardised way of reporting the who, what and how. So who was involved? What tasks did they do? How did you do it? How are you sharing your data? And that's really getting into the power sharing as well. And certainly, for example, one of the projects I'm working on is the Aboriginal uh, Precision Medicine Project with remote Aboriginal communities in New South Wales, Australia. And really that's where you're going into communities and you're saying, we would like to do research with you, not, not on you. Exactly. And that's a huge shift. And, and it should go without saying there's an enormous legacy of problematic or perhaps more might even say bad research in Australia in particular coming from very different perspectives, more anthropological and all of the history that that implies. You know, so really to come in with an evidence-informed method to go, this is how we are planning to share power. And really, I suppose the main learning from my PhD is you've got to involve people in designing how they're involved. So if that sounds like I'm disappearing up a rabbit hole, I'm very willing to admit that. But that's why I'm trying to bring a bit of evidence to it. And I think it, this also widens out to, we need to think about genomics not as just a human thing and not as just a medical thing. I mean, I think it's very important to remember that we automatically medicalize genomics very often when we talk about humans. And it can also mean things like ancestry or what have you. But of course, a good example is British Columbia in Canada. They talk about genomics as agriculture, forestry, farming, and then humans is a subcategory of that. And involving indigenous peoples in that is also, you know, in the management of agriculture, forestry, and also ethical involvement in genomics research. So indigenous peoples around the world, those cultures, guess what? They've already got there and realized that this holistic thinking, you know, we are of the earth, we will return to it, and we're absolutely dependent on it. And actually making the space to incorporate those views, those values into 
research, whether it's health or environment, is essential. I think taking that more holistic systems thinking approach to involvement is important too. So that's where started, as I'm calling it, the standardised data on initiatives. What we're doing is attempting to come up with a systematic way of planning involvement and reporting it and reporting the impacts of it so that we can start to create living systematic reviews that give data on what is perhaps the most effective way of involving people for the cheapest amount or what is the best way to involve a lot of people or do you want a citizen's jury to reach a decision on a complex thing? You know, so you can, as someone planning research, you can start to plan how you will involve people at different stages. But of course, what's interesting is if you're truly doing what, what's called participatory action research or, or co-design and sharing power, you have to listen to what the needs of the local people are. And you've talked about words like health and certainly health and well-being. Well-being comes up more in the language of Aboriginal health services in Australia. They come back and say, well, what about other animals? What about the systems and the rivers and their genomes and this data? And that's certainly true parallel in sort of Canada with other indigenous peoples there. And for example, we're, we're working with Aboriginal people to look for critically endangered species using environmental DNA as well. So there's lots of different ways of involving people in research and it doesn't just stop at humans. Yeah. So it's about that transparency, that openness, that involvement at every stage from what should we do, how should we do it, through to sharing the data, disseminating and uh, getting around the campfire at the end of the evening to share knowledge in a way that our ancestors have been doing for thousands of years. And, and we call that campfires in science. Jack Nunn, Director of Science for All. You can follow Jack on Twitter, he's at Jack Nunn, and find out more about Science for All, Campfire Science and the Stardit Initiative online at scienceforall.world. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be swimming off in search of our inner fish. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please, 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 yes, do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. It puts us up the rankings and it does help more people to discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, the logo is designed by James Mayle, transcription is by Viv Andrews, and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.